Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we're rewinding back to August the 27th, 2013. This was originally episode 1195. Ben Falk on the Resilient Farm and Homestead. Ben Falk, of course, has become a member of our expert council and has done a lot to help this community. Again, they're going back to 2013 here. This is, I mean, it's somehow it's kind of crazy to me that 2013 is like six years ago, but it is it's six years and some change here. Um, and it just kind of reinforces how long some of the relationships uh, that have been developed in the TSP community have lasted. Ben and I uh, are good friends and uh, contemporaries in the world of permaculture. I'd say he's a bit ahead of the curve on me on the designer side of it. He's a pretty amazing dude. And then, you know, since this time, he's had a kiddo and started growing him up. And I see pictures of his kids on Facebook, or his kid on Facebook. And I'm like, wow, can't believe how much he's grown already. So much has happened since this episode originally aired back in August of 2013. Um, but, you know, what hasn't changed is the principles of permaculture. The principles, I mean, we're always coming up with new techniques and tactics within the world of permaculture but the principles. And when he wrote the book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead, it was clear that it was anchored in principles. And not necessarily, I don't mean that they're not there, but not necessarily the principles as in the, the ethics and the prime directive, but permaculture principles that are you know hard, specific things. If you do this, then you get this result. And that doesn't mean that you do this thing or that you don't do this thing. What it means is when you do this thing, this is what happens. So in your design, you make decisions based on whether I want the outcome here to reflect this principle or not. And it was really a great read for me the first time I read this book. And I really recommend that you consider picking up a copy of it. It is somewhat specific to cold climates. And I would say, obviously, it is, is most specific to northeastern U.S. cold climate. So, you know, northern, you know, all, all of New England, northern PA, upstate New York, northern Ohio, Michigan, that kind of that whole piece over. But I think that this book is beneficial to anybody, anywhere. And what I really liked about it as I read it was Ben admitting learning certain things that he had preconceived ideas would be a certain way, and it turned out, no. For instance, he did a lot with pastured poultry and paddock shift sheep on his property. And, you know, being a person that is mindful of things like heirloom uh, plants, heirloom animals, etc., um, he made a few attempts at using chicken breeds that were not, you know, Cornish cross chickens. Because, well, that just seems to make more sense. He used uh, the kosher king cockerels from, from the Amish because they grow those kosher kings uh, specifically for an egg bird. And they basically will sell the cockerels, the males, for, for almost nothing. 
So that seemed, and they get really big, so it seemed like a great idea. Well, I can tell you I was personally there while those birds were being run, and we spent more than a couple times chasing them down and getting them back into the electronet. And I, while I didn't get to eat any of those particular birds, and they, we did butcher them, they looked beautiful when we butchered them, but apparently the meat quality just really wasn't there. And so he went back to using Cornish cross chicken, which doesn't sound very permaculture-y. But, I, I mean, I look at it as appropriate technology. So just because you're using a Cornish cross chicken doesn't mean that you need to keep it in a chicken house of horrors like Tyson or Purdue does. That bird can have a good quality of life. It grows very, very quickly. It may not work as hard as some other birds, but you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't fly out of the electronet, run down the hill, and get eaten by a fox or a dog. It stays in the electronet where it's safe. And so there, you're going to hear us talk about that and some other things like that, some other preconceived ideas or things that, you know, people put in a book on permaculture, like chickens breaking a fruit, fruit fly cycle, and guess what? Didn't work out that way in this particular situation. Now, there could be places where it does work out and it doesn't work out, but what I gleaned from his book was, whether it's in my book or anybody else's book, don't just assume it's going to do what the book says it's going to do. Go out and give it a try. And, you know, follow the, the principles of permaculture, like accepting feedback. And when you get feedback that this thing doesn't perform the way you expected it to in your situation, adapt, improvise, and overcome. So with that, let's go ahead and rewind back, as I said, to August the 27th, 2013. Originally episode 1195, Ben Falk on the Resilient Farm and Homestead. With that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into our main topic and uh, bring uh, Mr. Ben Falk on. With that, hey, Ben, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Great to be back here, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hey, um, you're on our expert council, so a ton of the audience is familiar with you, but I think like many people in permaculture, you weren't born into the, the like a point where you like just woke up one day and said, I'm going to go to school for permaculture instead of a permaculture business. You kind of had a varied background like many of us do to get the permaculture bug. So for those that maybe are tuning in for the first time or don't know that much about you, can you tell people how you went uh, from whatever it was you were doing before to uh, actually like doing basically permaculture as a profession? Yeah. Well, you know, like most folks, I, I that I know uh, my age, I grew up in the suburbs, had no real exposure to this at all, didn't keep a garden growing up or, or anything like that, you know, didn't didn't even um, have a vegetable garden in my house. My parents never grew food or anything. Um, I don't know, I ended up going to college in Vermont and um, getting exposed to um, uh, growing Growing food, food, did an internship um, at a local farm and um, ended up going to grad school for architecture and right before that bought a house um, to actually work on and then with the idea of selling after grad school instead of just wasting money on rent. And uh, it didn't quite work out that way. I ended up quitting grad school for architecture and going back to school for landscape architecture instead and got back from that school and um, started planting trees. And the business I had started um, after undergraduate school started to go pretty well, whole systems design, and I was able to um, pay the mortgage and didn't need to sell the place. Um, And then things just continued to grow, you know, quite literally. I was planting trees and starting to dig ponds and, all of the stuff I started studying in college, which was permaculture and ecological design, um, started to actually become real. And I started to, uh, you know, learn in a very direct way for the first time how to, um, 
regenerate a, a beat up old piece of land and, and get a lot of food and medicine and, and fuel wood and, you know, just health and inspiration from the world around me. And, um, I guess it's just kind of gone from there. And then all of our education work has just emerged from, from that, from sharing the lessons we've been learning, you know, where I live primarily for the last 10 years. Very cool. And I've got you on today to talk about this new book that you have out. I uh, got a copy of it a couple of months ago, and I think it's an awesome book. And I think part of what makes it feel so awesome for me is I've actually been to your uh, your farmstead. And I've been there and I've seen the, you know, the sea berries and the elders and, and the juice that you make out of that. The, uh, the sea berries just awesome. Uh, it makes me sad that they're kind of hard to grow in this heat. So I've got kind of this connection when I read that book. Like, oh, I remember that. I remember seeing that or what have you. I remember him talking about that while I was there. Um, so I think that's part of why I think it's a great book. But I think it's more than that. It's different in a lot of ways than just about any other book I've read on permaculture. Can you talk about what really makes your book different than the others that are already out there? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing is that this is just the direct account of someone's experience on a piece of land for about 10 years. Um, and while there's some philosophy and some principles and concepts, you know, backing the, the lifestyle and the approach in the book, it's really just, um, you know, firsthand experience what, you know, what I've been learning and uh, that what works and also what doesn't work as well. That's a big difference. You know, a lot of books just are promotions for ideas, but they don't say um, a lot about what doesn't work so well. And I've tried to put quite a bit about what hasn't worked so well because that's, that's part of experimenting and, and learning uh, how to um, how to do things in a in a synergistic way on a piece of land as well. So it's got both of those, and and then it also has a lot of depth in certain areas that I haven't seen in in, in particular books on the subject. And um, we go into quite a bit of depth on wood heating um, because that's obviously a you know you've got to stay warm as well as stay fed in a cold climate. It's 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 central to your existence. And there's just a real lack of information on, on details of how to dry wood carefully, how to burn it carefully, and how to get as many functions as possible on the way, and also how to grow fuel wood. I mean, there's a page in the book that I think I sometimes tell folks that page alone is worth um, twice the cost of the book. I don't mean to, to plug it directly, except that it is just so valuable. I, I would have gladly bought a plan like this that's on one of these pages which is a design, a construction drawing of our wood-heated hot water system, um, which, you know, we had to experiment quite a few times to get to work, and now it works fantastically, and we get all of our hot water from our wood cook stove. And it's the best darn piece of technology I've ever worked with, and so we have a plan for that exact system and, and how to build it in the in the book. There's quite a bit in our, of our design process, you know, from whole systems design and, and um examples of how how that process has gone about plans there's a lot of um really great photos in the book of these systems and and it's really just a very personal account of of what it's like to live this lifestyle as well it's really an account of the lifestyle not just you know the technical ends of it yeah absolutely um you also in that book have some principles that you've you've put together that i i really haven't seen anywhere else before and i want to get into a few of those in a bit Excuse me, but what really kind of struck me, excuse me, bad throat here, what really kind of struck me in reading your book was some of the things that you came up against that, like, you know, some other books said that this is true, and then you went to do it, and it wasn't true. You've had some struggles, I know, with uh, with chickens uh, not doing what the book says they do. 
Uh, well, I would, you know, chickens don't read books apparently, and I think you wish they did probably. Uh, but you've had some, like, can you talk about some of the more important lessons you've learned at your site um, that didn't correlate maybe with what people would generally expect because of existing literature? Yeah, definitely. Well, well, one is for cer- certainly the the chicken example. You know, I'd read, you know, put put chickens under your fruit trees and they'll they'll pick up the fallen dropped fruit and you know break the pest cycle by eating all the pests and makes sense, sounds great when you read it. And then you know, went to put chickens under. Main reason I got chickens about five years ago is put them under our fruit trees, our plums, which are always loaded with the curculio pest and those chickens didn't happen to want to eat any of those. I, I tried to put it right in front of them, feed it to the chickens. They didn't want any part of these uh, pesty plums. And um, they actually ended up um, jumping up and uh, breaking the branches of some of the younger plum trees. And um, I was like, ah, oh, I didn't read that. The book didn't say that part. And, you know, just <laughs> everything over the years has been, um, not everything, but many lessons learned have been an example of, you know, taking some ideas from literature and then really seeing how they really work out in my own system. And, and oftentimes they're not the same. And, you know, I think of a book as like um, as like a, a, a recipe book, like a cookbook. You know, no great chef is ever going to limit themselves to what the recipe is in the cookbook. But they might use it as a jumping off point for ideas. And and this book is is written in that way. Like, here's a bunch of ideas. Here's what we've learned. And now, you know, take it to the next level for your own site because it would definitely limit what you can do in your own place if you take anyone's word as, as final anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're, you're as big on that in your book as, as you are on this didn't work. It, it Also saying just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean it won't work for you, but you might want to think about it as you plan it out. I think that's like kind of the word of caution there is like when someone's new and they're just going to try something for the first time, and you're going to try to do something with chickens or, or rabbits or whatever. It a lot of times makes sense not to go out and get like two dozen of them at first. And, uh, and because it's much easier to back off a mistake with a few animals than, you know, uh, a herd. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I feel like we all need to take the first five to 10 years of, of living on our site to really try as many things as possible. You know, the establishment phase being one of just, you know, not not randomly, you know, not without educated guests, you know, learning from other people around you and things you've read, but really having a a high level of experimentation and diversity and narrowing it down over time as to what really fits you, your lifestyle, your skill set, what you like, and, you know, the characteristics of your particular climate and site. And this is an account of, my book's an account of that approach, you know, in a cold climate in the mountains, you know, on a beat up old sloping piece of land. Yeah. You're, when I read your book, I was kind of shocked at how many times your land had basically been, let's call it damaged or raped almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got the impression when I was there that like, it was just an old farm that kind of got away from whoever had it. And then you came in and fixed it, but that's not the case. Can you kind of about the history of your land and how, how uh, how many times it's it's actually that you know of been uh, kind of stripped and uh, and abused? Yeah, well, I I think um, you know at least a few times. I mean, and this was definitely one of those early hard scrabble farms that the that the settlers came up to when they got to Vermont in the in the um, early 1800s. And this was definitely a poor man's farm. I mean, it was oh, it was never some of the better soil you know that that is around here. We're kind of in between in elevations. 
some good drier soil in the highlands on a flat area above us a few hundred feet and then the river bottomland soil um, which is obviously the most fertile that floods every now and then and we're this hard scrabble cliffy clayey section in between but it did have 10 to 12 inches of silty topsoil that it does no longer has today due to a series of you know overgrazing they had a lot of cattle and sheep on the land 1800s as far as i can tell like most of the state and then it grew back into woods and was clear-cut again, probably in the early 1900s by a second wave of settlers, then abandoned again around World War II, grown up into white pine primarily, and then totally clear-cut again and bulldozed and stumped probably in the early 70s for the last round of settlers for this area, which were really second homeowners and people coming up to ski. And so, you know, I'm sure no one spreads, you know, clover and vetch and daikon radish and turnip and all the great things to follow up that disturbance so you know the soil was lost every time every one of these disturbance events on a steep slope like this and it's amazing to see kind of what it can turn into now in just a, a short number of years of, of regenerative you know human presence can't imagine what it could have been if, it, if we hadn't lost all those you know 10 plus inches of soil in the last 200 years oh sure absolutely i think the two two of the biggest things that are in your book and i know from being on site personally that have had the most dramatic impact on healing that land is one earthworks and two cover cropping uh, cover cropping really in conjunction with uh, design disturbance by livestock can you kind of talk about how those two things have played such a critical role and yeah. restoring your, it's, I mean, it's a steep piece of land, and you, you almost don't feel like it's that steep because of how you've got it shaped now. Yeah. Yeah, I think if there's only two things, you know, that, that we could do if we did it all over again, the two most important things would be making swales and broadcasting seed, you know, just causing disturbance and then broadcasting seed, and then grazing as well. And And the grazing is so awesome, but we, we really need to graze more. We haven't kept up with it enough because the, the, the making swales and broadcasting seed is easy. You take some time, you have some time, you do it once. You've made a huge beneficial impact. The grazing is more ongoing. you got to keep up with it, keep rotating the animals, um, you know, daily chores kind of thing. So, you know, the swales, it took us about six years to start making swales here of, of working with the land and watching it before we realized we need to try it, or five years, I'd say. And then now in the last handful of years, we realize that the whole property should have swales. And, you know, we know that early on. And, and now, you know, having this experience, we, we could have known, hindsight's twenty twenty. well, we could have just swelled the whole thing from the beginning. Um, but, you know, we had, to, we had to learn through experience. And everywhere there's a swale, I mean, all of a sudden we go from ferns and goldenrod and brambles, thin, you know, in a thin way, mostly bare soil in between these plants, to thick clover, vetch, radish, turnip, and just fantastic grazing and, and human food as well. I mean, our last permaculture design course that ended a few days ago, we, we pulled like 50 pounds of turnip and radish out of a fraction of a, of a swale, you know, in, in uh, about half an hour. And there's, you know, probably 500 pounds of root vegetables in the swale. They're not even planted as human food. They're not even seeded for human food just as a soil benefit. benefit. But, you know, the, the role of broadcasting is huge. If anyone, everyone can go out and invest, you know, 50 or $100 in some, some seed to just spread around their site after deliberate disturbance, you know, you get almost all your root crop that year from, from that alone, never mind the amazing uh, benefits to soil and water that you're doing on your site. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I noticed in your book is that initially when you were seeding, you were throwing down large, large, large amounts of cover crop seed and not getting the greatest results. And you kind of switched it up and went to more of a small amount after each uh, disturbance by the livestock, and that worked a lot better, right? Yeah, more small amounts often and, you know, using a carrier like sand or sawdust or something to – to make small seeds like clovers go further because you can start spending a lot of money on clover seed if you're not careful. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of that, you know, the cover crop stuff adds up quicker than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, what are some of your main things? I know the clover definitely, but what are some of the main things that you have been using behind your livestock? And can you maybe ferret out a little bit about what they do uh, how how you know some of them maybe come back on their own even if they're not perennials and some of them don't right. have to be re re uh, done more often. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think after both grazing and just any real disturbance, whether it's burning, which we've only done a couple of times, uh, grazing, which we do you know every day, and making swales, which or, or terraces, which we'll do um, you know multiple times a year for the most part will follow up as soon as possible, like within a day or two or a week, uh, with a variety of clovers, white Dutch white clover and New Zealand white clover are probably the most important. If I only had one seed to use, I'd use white clover. Um, and the earlier in the year you can do all this, the better. When we do earthworks late in the summer, like now, and we're primarily doing them so our permaculture design courses can, can see what's involved and participate, uh, you really can't get a lot of the early season stuff up because the season's just too short before the winter for things to get established. But when we do this stuff, both grazing and swale making, it's so effective when it's done in April and May. I mean, if you can get your animals, I feel like animals can do more restoration in April and May than in the whole rest of the summer combined. And same with swale making here. So we'll hit with clovers, white, um, red, mammoth, red clover, and that'll be, the clovers are all very persistent, especially the white. They'll come back year after year. The white clover will grow in areas that are definitely inundated for up to a third of the year. And I can swim around my ponds and see white clover roots floating out as a mat into the pond mm. in the water. White clover is a, a magic planet. I think it's a dynamic accumulator and a hyperaccumulator of nutrients from deep down and a nitrogen fixer at the same time. There's very few plants that I think do both, like lupin is one of them. And um, uh, white blossom and yellow blossom sweet clover are amazing plants. And you'll see those growing all over the sides of the roads, at least up in New England. They're actually a, they're, they're melalotus. They're not a true clover, I'm told. They're, they're a different genus, but they are actually a taprooting nitrogen fixer, kind of like a mullen. You know, they're very tall growing, and like you'd expect with a tall growing you know, um, perennial grass. They also send a root straight down. And they're a fantastic soil decompactor. They can grow on really rough stuff um, and fix nitrogen. They're not as palatable, though. They're, so they're not as good for the grazing animals, but they're not, you know, they're not a problem for the grazing animals, and they're great for the soil. And uh, those will actually, you can overseed those. I discovered the, them by accident. I spilled some of that out of the back of my truck in an area that I didn't mean to seed. And later that summer, there's this giant flush of biomass that was, 10 times taller than anything that had grown there in five years, and it grew in, in two months. And for the longest time, I thought it was outside clover, but it was actually white blossom clover. That, that's, that's pretty magical stuff. And, um, and yellow uh, or um, purple top turnip is really fantastic. It'll come up in the backfill of buildings. You can put it anywhere, and you'll get, uh, in our climate, we get, you know, 
up to easily softball-sized turnips and at times, you know, small bowling ball-sized turnips. <laughs> you know, after filling a building, we'll put this stuff, you know, the backfill of a building, the worst soil, we'll put all this mix. We always make this what I call our master mix and spread it everywhere. And the turnips will thrive there better than they will in the veggie garden. I didn't realize I never need to waste precious high-labor bed space to growing things like daikon radish or purple-top turnip. So daikon radish is another one. You can get tillage. They market it as tillage radish. There's no need to spend like 2 $3 on a little seed packet of daikon radish. You can, you can <laughs> split a 50-pound bag with your, your neighbors and friends, and you get, you know, it'd, it'd be pennies for a seed packet of, of daikon. To me, they taste just as good. You know, they're not bred uh, for being like an icicle radish, like a super tasty daikon, but I think they're just as good. I don't notice the difference. And they're, you know, they're mass- they're totally cheap, and you can buy them in quantity, and they're actually bred for being deep rooting. So those will fraction, will harvest just a fraction of what's out in the landscape. Yeah, I haven't used those, but I do get my cover crop mix from uh, high mowing, mm. and I buy their daikon radish, uh, and it's cheap, and I can't tell you a difference. And I think what's interesting about daikon is. Um, our climates, yours and mine, are quite different. And I have a, I mean, there is no clover in August in Texas. Wherever you can right. get clover to grow, uh, unless it's maybe a marshy area somewhere that's on a marginal edge, you, yeah. it, it just, it's like, it's like, I'm done. I'll come back in the fall or the spring, but I'm done. I'm not going to be here now. Um, but daikon, you know, we can grow daikon. As, as diverse as our habitats are from each other, I can grow daikon and you can grow daikon. It's, uh, wow. It's it's pretty pretty dead gone amazing. I mean, I've got it coming up in the lawn from throwing it behind chickens. Uh, you can you can get daikon grown through the summer. It doesn't just bolt on you. No, it really doesn't. Uh, if it's in an area where it doesn't get enough moisture, it will get sick or bolt. Uh, but in most areas, it will do just fine. Especially if it gets a little bit of shade and some moisture, um, it'll do great. I've actually got a lot of rock down only uh, a foot in a lot of areas. In some areas, it's even closer to the surface, and I've had daikon go down and hit that rock and then form the radish up out of the ground. Right, I've totally. got one out there right now. It's about two inches in diameter and four inches out of the ground. Yeah, yeah I do that a lot when it hits cobbles and stuff. Yeah, and it's funny when you pull it up, like the end is just flattened out, you know, and then it's got little string roots going around it trying to find uh, some way to get th- further down. It's it's pretty right. impressive stuff. Oh, it's amazing, and we end up leaving most of them in the soil. They rot down. They're like drilled worm. You know, like you're, you're drilling what essentially become worm castings in thousands of places around your site. Broadcasting seed is just the easiest thing, the easiest way to to improve land after disturbance. It's incredible how underutilized it is. Um, I think people look at it as, as as like a cost, but it's not a very big cost for for its benefit. We also then also put alfalfa in as well. Um, and vetch, uh, hairy vetch is, is awesome, and, and crown vetch. I forget which one we use more of. I think, I think we use more hairy vetch than crown vetch. One of those can, a lot of people think is a, is a nuisance plant, but it's a great nitrogen fixer, and we, the more the better for us. We never have too much vetch around, and it's great for the bees, and it climbs up the, the yellow blossom sweet clover, you know, up to a, a few feet off the ground. Um, and that's, you know, that's primarily what we set out there, and we definitely make sure to inoculate the clovers and the alfalfa, and also we'll put out peas and buckwheat, and, you know, those little 2 $3 inoculant packs, the, the rhizobium, that make yeah. the plant actually fix nitrogen. A lot of people will forget to inoculate, 
and um, then the plants might not be doing their work. Although you can rip up the plants and look for the nitrogen-fixing nodules to see if they're actually actually fixing nitrogen. I think it's one of those things that's so inexpensive to do. You just do it, um, you know, with the with the uh, with the inoculant. Um, I mean, obviously, these plants are capable of fixing nitrogen without a packet of inoculant, inoculant or they they would never do it. Um, but how much of the bacteria is is there on site? And giving it that Kickstarter, generally, I think you get a better result. And when you when you pull up a root system, like you're saying, and it's just laced with those little white pinkish nodules, you, you feel pretty good about it. Yeah, we, we, we kind of mix in the inoculant only if we're in really a new area that we've just really disturbed that we haven't spread seed before. Like just a few weeks ago, we actually cleared about an acre of, of pine logging debris and, and swelled it. And, you know... I, there was no clover in that air, so we'll inoculate. But then we'll only do it once. And I've never pulled up a plant to check for its nitrogen-fixing nodules and haven't, haven't, haven't seen the nodules. So they seem pretty reliable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what advice would you give for people looking for rural land? We have a lot of people that are looking for that piece of land out there and trying to find something. I mean, you did a lot of rehab work, but... Uh, you, and your site was certainly damaged, but it had a lot of potential. I mean, it was something that, you know, as I look at it now, I can see the potential had to have been there. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on finding land that maybe is it? Because a lot of times finding perfect land is, it equals expensive, um, but you also don't want to make your job harder than it has to be. Yeah, and that's where I would say is that all land has a lot of potential. It's just a question of how much, you know, some land's going to take more, a lot more work than the other piece or, or expense or both or time. And for sure, you want to maximize, you know, your time frame there. Um, yeah, it's it's a great question. We do a lot of work with helping people find, identify and, and then evaluate land. And um, it's very personal. It's a really question of oftentimes comes first from your budget um, or how close in you need to be to a population center. And, um, you know, around us, it all varies very quickly. Um, Oftentimes, I mean, the first thing we'll tell people is try to find a piece of land without an existing home because you just the, the amount you pay for an existing home and the quality you get is usually so disproportionate, at least in, in this in this neck of the woods. Um, so that's that's a big that's a big one. And then you know you're looking for aspect and water primarily off the bat. You know things like aspect, water, and access. Um, as long as you identify first your overall region, you're looking. Um, whether it's driven by a job or, or something else, um, you know, we'll start with water access first, then water, probably then access. And then, you know, things like soils will actually be further down the list because you can do more to change those over time. But, you know, you can't, you're not going to change the aspect of your land. You know, the human scale of permanence is, is probably the best thing to reference for, for looking at land because that's, you know, that list that PA Yemens came up, came up with a while ago when he was formulating key line design strategies of, of just how changeable different uh, features of a landscape are. So it's a perfect thing to reference in terms of looking for land. So oftentimes a lot of people look for soils first, and soils should actually be lower down on the list so you can do more to change them. But you're not going to make a north-facing site face, you know, southeast, <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, and you're not going to change the zoning in an area very easily either. And if, there, if you want to do something that existing law prohibits, I'm all for everybody that can get on board with fighting so that we can do things sustainably. But if you've invested a lot of time and money in a site and you didn't know that, for instance, you're not allowed to have livestock there, I mean, that, that can be just crushing. 
Yeah. yeah. We're lucky we don't have any of those places in Vermont for the most part, but that bad. We have other 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 bad laws, but how important is water? Well, water, you know, probably most ways is the most important thing. I mean, um, so you know, I'd rather be on a on a site with terrible soils and, and north facing and not even very accessible, um, but that has a fantastic, reliable spring high on the land than on than in really most other situations. Um, ideally, you can have have all those features work for you. But yeah, water. I think water's baseline, and you know, establishing water high on the land, catching it high on the land, and ideally finding a piece of land that already has a water source high on your property is one of the most important things you know you can look from. And you know, around this part of the world, if you find an old cellar hole or wherever you are, realize it's an old farm, the next thing you can do is look for either the spring that did exist or the spring that still does exist, because they. You know, without being able to drill a well, they had to look for springs uh, as a primary, you know, uh, feature in order to, to place a farm there. And now we have drilled wells, so it allows us to choose really poor sites um, in some ways. You know, not that a drilled well isn't very useful, but when the power's out or when your well pump breaks or whatever else fails, you know, that gravity feed source high in the landscape is is you, you just is beyond any any measure of value. So I think one of the things we have to be looking at is not just is the wa- is there water there, but can we impound water? Can we can we create a water source? Yeah, and and at what elevation on the land? You know, what, where might be the building sites, and and what are their relationship with the, the water source? You know, what is the relationship between zone one and your water source? You know, ideally you can have a passive water source high on the property. It's it's certainly not always achievable, um, especially on smaller pieces of land. Sometimes the highest water source on the property is water storage on the top floor of a building that you that you um, capture roof water from and either pump it back up or, or feed it into in a more mild climate. Yeah, and I think that it's it's kind of counter to the way that let's say the mainstream world builds a house and a pond. Everybody wants their house at the top so you can see the most, and they put the pond at the bottom because it just seems logical. Um, but, and there's nothing wrong with a low pond and, and a, and a higher elevation home, but it certainly has some major advantages if you can hold water above your house site. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, our approach is to generally when possible have, have, have both, you know, but you're going to have a pond down low because the water all ends up usually the lowest parts of the property or the wettest. But then, yeah, if you can have at least a small pond up on the property, um, that's ideal. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're kind of, you have to compromise, you have to pump water from where you have a lot of it down low to up high. But, you know, a big emphasis of our work in our book as well is, is passive systems, you know, systems that are unbreakable and really don't have those vulnerabilities, like if at all possible, not having to rely on a pump or using it for convenience, but not in a, you know, not in a dire way, you know, relying on it. Yeah, there's like, you know, I call self-sufficiency and self-reliance in that where, you know, the self-reliance thing is I can, I can get by if, uh, if there's a, a failure and I might have things that I use because I like it or it's convenient or it's nice, uh, when I don't have a failure. But the self-sufficiency component, those are the things that I can use whether or not the outside systems are available to me. And, you know, the pump is something that's, you know, you can have some self-reliance with that because you can put some pressure tanks in and you can put some backup power in, in and what have you. But gravity never fails. Water will always go downhill. And as long as you don't run out of water up top, you can always move it down. Right. Absolutely. 
Yeah, we're, one of the principles identified in the book is house as water tower. You know, in this climate, you put a water tower outside, and of course it's frozen for half the year, big ice block. And so in a lot of sites, it's really the home that's a high point. And storing water up in a building, top, you know, in your attic where it won't freeze, at least can provision you with drinking water and, you know, in a gravity-fed, pressurized way to your sink and your kitchen. And that pattern seems really strong. And you actually see them in old houses around here where a lot of people did have cisterns in the top floor of their house. Hopefully, in the best sites, they were fed by springs as well. But, um, you know, most of us can, can establish that that um, arrangement on our site, if we at least if we plan for it a little bit, too. I have a 50-gallon like tractor supply tank at the top of my little space um, that I didn't even plan for originally, and that's you know that's I don't know how many weeks of, of drinking water if that's guaranteed. You know, as long as gravity doesn't break, we have it. You know, flowing <laughs> yeah. across it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What are in your experience? Because you consult with people that generally have the self-reliant homestead concept in mind, one way or another. They have different motivations for it. Some are doing it because they want to be green, and some are doing it because they just want to be free. Uh, and most people are doing a little bit of both. And in your consulting and in your analysis, what have you seen be some of the easiest mistakes that people can make when setting up a self-reliant homestead? Yeah, uh, I think oftentimes getting the house site wrong, you know, is a kind of one of those type type one errors. Um, and so looking, it's easy to look for a flat spot on the site for a house. I think there's something just maybe in our mind and our like deep deep uh, instinct about that. You know, when you think about camping and you, you want to set up a tent for the night or just even sleep on the ground. You look for a flat spot. And actually, oftentimes on a in hill country, you want to save your flat spots for all your all your soil holding, all your vegetable gardening and a house is great on a slope because then you can access it via two levels you know at grade if you just put a little retaining wall in so that's a big one that we're often identifying is is siting a house in in a place you know avoiding a mistake on house siting um i think you know where to put a well where where to drill a well and making sure it's high on the land is is another one they'll often just drill it wherever the truck can get and call it good and if you drill it a little higher, you have just more head pressure right off the bat or establishing, you know, something better like a spring. Um, I think with the home design, we, we, we do a lot with helping people avoid mistakes in terms of um, orientation of a house and also just, just building strategies to, to actually be able to heat their house really easily and create microclimates outside with their house site, you know, wherever in this climate you basically destroy to a large extent, what's ever north of your house and enhance what's ever south of your house. And so thinking about that at the outset, what kind of, you know, what kinds of space in the landscape are you influencing when you place a house and making sure that's in an area that that is worth um, influencing the way you want to. And not that the north of a house is, you know, totally destroyed, but you can put compost or park a car there, but it's not where you're going to want to hang out almost ever, put your gardens or any of those high-value spaces you know, having access to the north, that's a key pattern. Avoiding driving up to the south side of your house, that, that very valuable space. That's a t- another type one error that's easy to avoid if you're thinking about it. You know, whenever I pull up to a home and there's a garage on the south side, in this climate, it's like, you know, that's a real bummer. <laughs> that's a lot of high-value space. You know, yeah, you can keep your car warm that way. <laughs> right, it's great. The car might be happy. You know, it's almost yeah, it's almost even worse for the car. It's sitting there, you know, cooking all day. So that's that's um, an easy one to identify. I mean, there's there's so many, but those are those are some of the big ones. Um, 
you know, the overall master planning and like arrangement of all the elements on the site is a big one. Ensuring access, it's easy in hill country to to really box yourself out and not not maintain enough access. So we'll tend to plan the access very early on. You know, water and access is kind of primary things that we'll plan with folks on a site. Um, yeah, Spe- and you know, species selection is really far down on the list. A lot of people want to go there first and talk about, oh, well, you know, what plants do we grow? And it's like that's important, but that's that's lower resolution. You got to get the bones and the, the structure of the system set up right first. Yeah, because that whole that whole answer changes as you sculpt land. Okay. Um, you look at a piece of land and go, well, you can't possibly grow species X on that. And then you go in, you graze it, you shape it, you put a pond here, you put a swale there, and then all of a sudden, you know, it'll it'll work perfectly for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another big thing that, you know, we're always catching um, is just when you go look at a piece of land, you really got to train yourself to imagine the land without any vegetation. Just picture the slope, you know, or even if you think it's flat, it's always some slope, but picture just the land shape and the path of the sun and forget all the existing trees. Because which is hard to do, you know, it's easy hmm. to visit a piece of land. It's like, oh well, this site doesn't have a view. Well, it could have a view, depending how big it is and what <laughs> <it's> down. <laughs> I'm not yeah. recommending that that's you know what people do all the time, but you know, if you're looking at more than an acre or two, a little bit of of cutting of trees and opening of land can dramatically change things. And sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of land developers know that and they'll create a view. They'll buy land for cheap that people don't think has a view and then you know, cut all the trees and have a big, expensive view. But for people who want to tap into solar energy, it's really key that we, that we have that in our mind when we're looking at land and just understand the, the bones of the site, you know, the, the baseline landform and where, how the sun moves across that landform and imagining for a moment you know, that, the, that the vegetation is not very permanent, but the landform sure is, and so is the path of the sun. Yeah, you can only do so much with a bulldozer or a track hoe. Um, the, the the thing with the trees, though, I think a lot of permaculture people have this 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 idea that I don't ever want to cut a tree down, and it's it's noble in some ways, but uh, in the end, most of us live in houses made out of wood. There and there are places where it makes sense, like a tree is is reached its full potential and it's in decline, or it's just not going to become what it's capable of there, and we can put something better in its place and we can selectively remove timber without clear-cutting a property. Absolutely. And, I mean, the overall net regeneration and resilience that you get out of cutting timber can be very much in the positive, you know, even in the short term. I mean, directly south of the house that was on this property when we got here was a monoculture stand of about two and a half acres of white pine. They're 60 feet tall, 70 feet tall, shading out the house in shading zone one, what's now some of our most valuable space. And over the span of three years, we cut probably all of those white pine down, um, probably about 100 trees. They look really big. They're actually only 40 years old. They're about, you know, one and a half to two foot diameter. And in that area, in two and a half acres now, we have, let's say, in a place we cut 100 trees down, we've planted hundreds and hundreds of, of trees and berry shrubs and are already getting, you know, food out of a place that was producing zero food and would produce zero food for another, you know, 40 years, and we've got a whole building's worth of, of lumber out of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's hard to do psychologically, I mean, and and it, it is to be taken seriously, and cutting down a tr- something that's been there for, for twice as long as I've been there, 
you know, is, is something to take seriously. But it, it is cutting a tree can be a very regenerative act. That's for sure. Well, and there's again, there's just you can look at certain stands of timber and go, if I don't take this tree out, nature's going to anyway. Because when you look at how a lot of forest grows, it grows denser than it will be at climax. And a lot of times you'll look in there and you've got these really tall, thin trees growing very, very densely, and you know there's just no way that it, it's, pos- it's possible for that to continue uh, anyway. So going in and thinning some of that at that point is really helpful, uh, even to a long-term woodland plan. Absolutely. Disturbances, disturbances is and always has been. It's just a question of how to, how to apply it. So what are some of your top strategies for drought or flood-proofing a homestead? It's kind of like a feast or famine sometimes in a lot of places where I know your um, the village right below you um, took it pretty hard with one of the hurricanes a couple of years ago, flooded out big time. And yet even with all the rain, I mean, when I hear you say dry, I want to smack you honestly because <laughs> if you don't put a rain fly in a tent at your place in, in the summertime, you'll wake up soaking wet from dew drop alone. But you do get those dry periods as well, and you have some areas on your land with shallow soil. So you have this potential for massive amount of water in one instance and then for not enough in another. So what are some of the strategies you've developed around that? Yeah, well, I'd say – you know the the biggest one is is swale, so that you're catching it's the biggest bang for your buck to catch all the water that was flowing across your site off and out of your site uh to actually hold all that and send it into your ground and into your soil into your aquifer you know into your ponds so that's that's probably the easiest way and then you know and that's a structural strategy. And that then also helps to build soil, which is a structural strategy, you know, soil organic matter, which is ultimately the best place to hold water besides in, in wood, like in a hugel mound. And then ponds, you know, are great as well, especially if it's high in the landscape, but that's a lot more work for the amount of moisture you can hold, although you can hold liquid water, which you can distribute, which you can't with, with swales. You're holding, you know, water in humidity in the soil, which you can't just, you know, gravity feed to different areas. And then I think it's in, you know, species selection and arrangement, making sure you have um, drought-tolerant species and you have plenty of shade. You have, you know, vertical vegetative structure developed so you don't so – your, your, your land isn't just getting blasted with sun all the time. You have some humidity maintained in the system. I'd say those are the big ones. Um, and even here, you know, we had – 20 inches of rain in about eight to nine weeks early this summer. It was the wettest summer on record since the 20s, uh, about as wet as it can get gets here or has gotten. And then it basically hasn't rained in uh, three weeks. You know, the spigot just turned off, which I, I knew would happen. You know, it's how it goes. It's either too wet or too dry. And now everyone's scrambling to to uh, to get water to everything. And it's like it's all about storage of abundance when there is abundance and spreading it across time. And I'm thinking your your homestead's probably weathering three weeks without rain pretty well. Absolutely. And we are lucky, like you said, I mean, we had the whole permaculture course didn't it rained once briefly and everyone, you know, the grass is soaked. It's like it, it people think it, it rained every night. It's just from the dew. It's crystal clear nights and you can measure the dew in you know, in centimeters almost. But um so that's helpful and that's a function of having topography. I mean that's where the site selection thing is big, is if you can choose to be Near or in the mountains, you know, you're automatically, like, way out of drought danger compared to being out in the plains. 
just because of the amount of moisture that's harvested, you know, in the landscape, uh, in a hilly or mountainous landscape. Um, but yeah, everything's looking great here. I mean, our, every, our water storages are still three quarters to, to four fifths full, you know, from the wet times. And I mean, our Hugo Mounds, it could not rain for a whole summer and they're still going to be soaking wet in the core of the Hugo Mound just from the winter, you know, from a long, snowy, cold winter. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's something that people don't realize about cold climates often that the, uh, that, that long cold winter is actually an asset if you're planting appropriate, uh, uh, plantings for your, your growing season. Uh, there is a lot of moisture put into the ground and there's also that snow cover actually can be a protector of some, uh, some plants that will come back as perennials that in a similar temperature without the snow or even a much less severe winter without the snow might not come back. Yeah. I mean, frozen water is 32 degrees, and I, I, I think sometimes that's missed by a lot of people. Yeah, 32 is really all, not that cold, and you know, yeah. be equal. And, yeah, I'd much rather – I mean, this is a very non-brittle climate. I mean, we're very lucky here in northern – you know, especially northern New England. Uh, we have an easy time of it compared to um, – you know, down where you are, some you know some of the areas in the country that really you you really have to take it to a higher level to um to to avoid serious drought stress. You know, it gets it gets serious and for real down in some of those places compared to here very quickly. Well, I've been actually working on some stuff for a workshop we're going to be doing in October, and because of that, and I needed to get some things done this morning, I uh, did not do a show this morning like I usually do. This show's running the same day that we're recording it, which is very unusual for the Survival Podcast. Because of that, I, I did a post about the fact that that was going to happen, and a few people have asked some questions. We've actually answered quite a bit. There was some stuff on polyculture pasture. I think we really hammered that with the cover cropping and uh, rotational grazing already. But I do have a rational husker here asking if you can elaborate a little bit on, on your wood, cook stove, water heater, heating system. Uh, where you got it, any suggestions, you advice you might have on a similar system, and uh, did it cause any problems with respect to homeowners insurance, which I kind of know the answer to that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I mean, ours is a Waterford Stanley, and I got it on Craigslist for um, about $750, and they still make them new, and they're, you know, I think, almost $6,000 new with the water heating jacket in the back. And there's one other company called Essie, as far as I know, that makes new ones. It's still currently making them. They're both over in, in the U.K. Um, it's a great business for someone to get into, by the way. We need to make these probably at least in a few places in the country because it's just the best thing you can have in your house from a technological perspective if you need heat and hot water uh, and cooking. So that's, you know, our, ours is a Stanley, and um, it's a small firebox. It heats 1,500 square feet, no problem. Um, we have a backup furnace, which we got for initially for our insurance to satisfy that. So, um, I think, you know, it's, it's not a problem in that way, but I'm, you know, not going to, um, you know, make it a problem. That's for sure. Um, and it's, it's great. It burns super hot. So we don't actually have to clean our chimney. Uh, we check it every year, but if you burn really hot wood really well and you, and you keep, you burn, have some real hot burns at least once or twice, um, a week or a month, you know, we're, we're able to keep this, the, the stovepipe totally clean. Um, yeah, there's a lot of details in it, uh, about this in the book, but it's, it's the smartest, you know, heat system I've ever been a part of. I once was going to do a masonry oven because they're so efficient, but they, they don't heat hot water very well. 
and while you can bake in them, they don't really have a cook surface at all, which seems pretty critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another question I have for you on the audience uh, feedback, uh, I already answered what it is, but maybe you can talk a little bit about them because they are so awesome. And he mentions in your videos he sees these orange berries, all little tiny orange berries all over these, these bushes behind you. He wants to know what they are, and I told him they're sea berry or sea buckthorn. But that's actually one of your favorite things, and you've been experimenting with different varieties and, and, and things like that. And it's, it's a pretty amazing plant. Could you talk a bit about that plant? It is. It's, it's, it's kind of, I think, our biggest um are, are one of our most important ones, certainly, you know, the one we're planting the most of, um, partly because of a commercial um, aspiration with the plant. And uh, it's, it's you know, originally naturalized in northern Eurasia. You know, people wild harvest seaberry all over northern Scandinavia, all the way out to the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, you know, across all of um, northern Asia. It's a nitrogen-fixing fruit, which very few few fruits are actually put put more back into the soil than they take um and it's a nutraceutical quality berry i mean it's a super food berry that it yields it's high in essential fatty acids which as you know if you think of fruit being high in, in really good fats it's things like avocado or coconut you know things that are heavy hitters really medicinal quality uh food medicine and they're loaded with vitamin c and vitamin e and uh you know fat soluble stuff and all sorts of phytochemicals and um, and you know anti-cancer compounds that people are have been studying now in earnest in the last handful of years and actually loaded with bioflavonoids which for people are aren't familiar are mostly from citrus which is another orange fruit and um, it's about the only bioflavonoid source I think we have here in, in in most at least in New England and probably most any cold climate there's not a lot of orange uh, fruits in this area. Um, I don't think peaches, I'm looking at some peaches right here, actually, I don't think peaches have bioflavonoids or many in them. Uh, so very, very medicinal quality uh, plant, and you can graze it, which is very key for us because we graze everything. Our whole polyculture is grazed, which is a really key thing that we're trying to work with and a challenge for sure because the animals will graze a lot of the plants you don't want them to graze as well. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's thorny and not so palatable for grazing animals is fantastic. And so we can graze them as living as living hedges, and we're planting them as hedges very densely. So eventually they'll be paddock edges, especially for things like cows. A lot of our seaberry alleys would already be cow fencing. I don't think cows would walk through a lot of our seaberry hedges. Goats, you know, for sure would get through them. But uh, for a lot of animals, the living fence... Um, value of them is already already in effect here and how we plant them and they're great you know they're they don't get too tall that you ever really need a ladder to harvest them uh but they're tall enough that they're tough the snow doesn't bend them over and break them and and grazing animals even if they start wanting to munch on them a little can't reach a lot of the plant so that to me that's like a perfect height for an edible shrub in a grazed polyculture so like an elderberry or a sea berry size you know eight to twelve feet six to ten foot type of size and they grow fast and they're very propagatable you can make more of your own very very quickly and easy. were you doing some work where you were grafting different varieties onto existing plants or something like that yeah so we we couldn't afford to buy all so all like initially established just selected varieties because they were like 
you know, like 20 something bucks a plant from one green world where we originally got our source and they have all sorts of amazing plants over there in, in Oregon, one green world and Northwoods nursery. Um, so we bought a lot of seedling stock from lawyer nursery, which are cheaper, you know, just field grown seedlings. They're, they're either males or females and they're not a special variety. And then we now graft for the last few years, graft onto those seedlings, just using them as rootstock because they're really established and literally top work them, like cut them down or cut huge branches off them and put on wood from the plants that are really valuable to us that are making really great um, berries and we know they're female. And now we're also planting, you know, cloning those from cuttings and planting those out from scratch in new areas and then we'll graft male, we're starting to graft male tips onto those so we'll make just a little male sprig to pollinate each plant and then you only need one sea berry so you can sell those or trade those Otherwise, you know, you need males and females. So it's a, it's, it's um, been a really incredible plant to work with, and we're we're really starting to plant them at some large at, at, at scale on another site that we're developing in central Vermont. Well, as, as we wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about more about how people get your book, and I want to say something for you. I mean, so I got your book, and I was like, well, Spence's book, you know, I'll, I'll read it and I'll take a look at it, and I, I'm pretty hard on on books because I I want a book, especially on permaculture. If you're going to write another book, you know, telling me the, the the existing principles of permaculture and the three ethics and the prime directive, and spend half the book doing that, that's all good and well, but we have that already. Um, I want a book that gives me real world hard lessons on what works and what doesn't, and I was actually blown away by your book. It was. As much as I knew about what you were doing, it was better than I expected. It was one of the best I've read. And I know that you wrote it for cold climates because you're in a cold climate. But I have to say that a huge amount of what's in there would apply to anybody in the United States, certainly. I, there's a lot of stuff that you can do in the tropics that's so unique to the tropics that, you know, you probably aren't really worried about seaberry, for instance, because uh, it won't grow there. But, uh, you know, I can grow. I can't grow seaberry, but I can grow elders. I can't really do very well with gooseberries, but man, nah, we're going to give it a shot in some shady spots and see what happens. Um, but I think that the overall flow and the lessons and the principles that are there are unique and very advantageous to to anybody with a mindset toward uh, creating this type of a, a resilient homestead. Um, so I want to tell you, you did an awesome job on it, Ben. And I mean, the work that must have went into it. The illustrations, the photographs, it's just amazing. So just good job, and, and thanks for putting so much into a book because it, it, it made it worth reading. Uh, and sometimes I get a new book, and I go, eh, I already knew all this stuff. And, you know, I actually been to your site, and yet I didn't know everything that was in the book. Yeah, that, that means so much, Jack, because I, I was, you know, when we were writing, I was really hard on myself the whole time. Like, is this going to be worth its weight in paper to, like, someone go out and mulch a tree with? Because... I feel the same way. I'm hard on books as well, and I was really like, this This has to be worthwhile if we're going to do this and put this out and ask people to buy this, you know? So, Absolutely. So how can people get it? Is there like a preferred way that you have? Because I mean, some authors like just buy it anywhere, and some are like, man, yeah. it'd be really great if you'd go buy it from this source. Yeah, that's great. Um, it, we sell it directly off our website, which is wholesystemsdesign.com. Um, all one word, all you know, no spaces, lowercase, wholesystemsdesign.com. If you just Google my name, you, that'll come up, and, and or the book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead. And, you know, Amazon sells it, of course, but we we get, like, next to nothing when it's sold through Amazon. So um, if you buy it through us, it'll be a little more than Amazon, just a disclaimer, but we'll, we're able to take 
you know, a chunk there and put it into more research and the next revision, which will certainly be probably need to be a revision every few years because we're always trying new stuff every year and learning a lot. So that's much appreciated uh, to support the work. And, um, yeah, you know, our, our Facebook page, Wholesome Design, is where we keep updated with things we're learning, you know, more than our main website. But that has a lot of info, too. So I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes where people can get it directly from you. And it, I, I'd kind of appreciate if, folks, if you're going to pick up a copy of the book, uh, if you can, you know, get it directly from Ben. Uh, the amount of work that goes into a book is massive. That's why I have three books that are not finished. Um, <laughs> and I and I, I have like one that was, and it really wasn't that great. And it was from a long time ago and about sales. And uh, uh, I wrote it with a partner while drinking. Merlot wine at a hotel in a lobby, and so you know it reflected the, the book you wrote. Took honestly, it it, it it looks like it took the entire amount of time that you have into the homestead. So I think it's 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 worthy that authors be you know compensated for that type of work. Um, I do want to, uh, as we end here though, uh, have you kind of give an example of what you mean by you've learned things since you put the book out. And we yeah. tried this interview earlier, and we we missed this. So I want to maybe bring us back to it here for people that didn't hear it. You uh, like me, you're you're experimenting with geese this year, and 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 what did you learn about so-called weeder geese? Yeah, well, they might weed someone's crop, but but here they'll they'll uh, they'll eat the weeds and they'll eat our own crop, <laughs> which I wasn't surprised by. But um, yeah, you know the the we bought weeder geese because we were looking for pilgrims, and they were all sold out. So we just got the they call them weeders where we got them, which are just, they're really just all sorts of mixed breeds. Um, but the geese, we really have to fence out of our, our gardens, and we didn't fence out of our squash, and actually ate our whole, one day I was gone, and they just massacred the whole squash crop, and the squash is gone. They ate it down to the, you know, right down to the roots, um, our whole, you know, winter squash, which we normally keep for the whole year, basically. Um, so the geese we're learning a lot with, but they're also fantastic. If you mow an area and really knock a lot of grass down, they keep it low. I mean, there's a reason they go to to parks and golf courses. They love that succulent stuff, and they'll keep it that way, which is really useful on your paths. And they'll put on – these birds are huge. They're like four times the size of our ducks, and mm-hmm. they really don't need any grain. I mean, they learn to eat grain from watching the ducks. They weren't interested in it at all. They'll just put on meat. They seem to be the fastest meat source without grain. Unbelievably fast. Yeah, that's so, that's what I found. I mean, what the growth rate in four to five weeks was unbelievable. And as far as the grain feed that we feed our chickens, um, they're pretty good at chasing the chickens away from the feeder just to be bullies. But uh, they don't really eat a lot of it. You know, it's no. like kind of like a snack to them. They live on grass and weeds and my garden. Yeah. I've had the same experience you have. Um, what I found with them is kind of interesting, though. I have about a one-acre paddock that there's nothing really over there they can harm. I do have some uh, black-eyed peas growing in an area, but they're fenced out of that, and uh, they stay there throughout the day. If I let them out about 6 o'clock, then they roam around and follow us while we're out there, and they eat grass. If I let them out right now, they will immediately go into my garden, hammer the cow pea cover crop that we have in there, and then come crap on my porch. <laughs> and look in the window at me like, why won't you come outside? We want to follow you. Um, so, the, you know, the weeder geese thing, I think we when we, we tried the interview the first time, uh, you know, I pointed out, I know places it works. If you run a strawberry operation, as long as you don't put them in there when the berries are on, they'll leave a strawberry plant alone and they'll eat everything around it. Right. Uh, they're heavily, heavily used by people that grow mint commercially, and they won't touch mint. Um 
They will eat prickly lettuce. I don't have, you know, that's like a very noxious weed down here. I don't have it anywhere. It's gone. Uh, they literally ran from one place to the other to eat that. But, yeah, they'll hammer a garden. I mean, the, the concept that we, you know, geese can just be used for weeding, again, I, I know it works for potatoes. They won't, they won't mess with the tomato plants, at least mine don't. But, you know, they'll eat, they'll eat, they'll pull, they'll push over a sorghum plant to, to, uh, to, to just hammer it from top to bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just, they seem really, there's some annoying features about them and they're really loud and they definitely are bullies. Um, and one of ours just died one day. I don't know why. We literally found a dead goose with no, hadn't been attacked or anything. Um, so I don't know if there was some weird disease. Um, but generally, they seem super vigorous, and just like we said, the, the fact that they can put on meat super quickly, like in weeks and short months, with real, with no grain whatsoever, is incredible. I mean, that alone makes me think we need to figure out how to have geese in our system in a really good way, which I think <laughs> is doable with some fencing. We yeah, you can, our garden them, with you can shift them fencing. the way you do chickens, Ben. I mean, that's what I did. Um, they'll... They'll fight through netting, though, and I have a hard time getting even the stakes for the netting in the ground. But what I used to move mine and put them where I wanted them is hog panels, hog feedlot panels. So they're only about uh, three foot high, so you can step over them. Yeah. And they're 16 feet long, so you can put a 16 by 16 foot square, and you get a, uh, a reusable heavy gauge tie wrap and tie wrap it together. Yeah, and you yeah, stick them in there and give them some shade in a fifty-gallon stock tank, a low-profile plastic fifty-gallon stock tank with water, and and you can move them every day that way. And until you get to a place where it's too narrow to get trees through or whatever, you can just basically move the whole thing as a unit. And the nice thing about them is they're once they get used to you, they're pretty easy to kind of herd. So yeah. unlike your chickens that you have to chase with the dogs to get back in, you can move their their cage, leave it open, and just kind of walk them in there with a stick and we did that and i was like you totally blown away with the growth rate and my hope is just to have enough of a of a flock here to produce a couple dozen fertile eggs every year to hatch out and run like broilers because you're right the meat yield on them is absolutely insane 12 weeks and you've got a 12-pound bird. You probably have bigger ones because you get a different breed. I've got Toluskis, which are kind of a medium-sized goose. But, yeah, in 12 weeks, I've got 12, 13-pound birds. Yeah, can't do that with chickens and definitely without not with – Not on grass. Yeah, I mean, never on grass. I mean, you ain't going to do it anyway, but you really ain't going to do it on – you won't grow them out to their potential in 12 weeks on grass. But a goose, man – and I'm telling you something else about the, the goslings. It was like May when we got them. So it wasn't really, really cold. We had a small chicken tractor built. They went from the box, from the shipper, into the chicken tractor. They never saw a brooder. Yeah. And they had 100% survival until I lost a couple of predators uh, uh, last month. Um, but we certainly didn't lose them due to the environment. They're hardy as hell, too. Oh, yeah. They, they put them in. You know, they keep the ducks warm in shipment. We put ours right in our greenhouse, and they just were running around, crashing into the walls. You know, they're crazy. When they're young, they can't see. They're just like running around like chickens with heads cut off, really funny little creatures, and they just were, they were already eating greenery like the day we got them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they came out of the box, into the tractor, and ate grass. I mean, that yeah. fast. Yeah, exactly. And I read some forums later that said, it's dangerous, don't do it, and I'm like, okay. There's another example of the goose didn't read the book, and, you know, my thought is when, when the mother goose has baby geese and then takes them out 
they probably eat whatever they want. So what's the difference, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, they've been a really sweet new addition since the book, since I finished writing the book. And since the book came out this spring, but I really finished writing it um, because of production time last fall, our whole greenhouse, which we had been planning for years and was finished in the late fall, is also not in the book. And that's been, mm. you know, huge learning in another year or two, I'll have a lot of lessons to share about the greenhouse because it's and a and root cellar as well, which are actually combined and integrated. That's another another big one for sure. I got one more thing on geese before we finish here. The the, the concept is these domesticated geese aren't good flyers, and they aren't, but doesn't mean they can't fly. And they do fly. What they need is a head a head of steam. So I can put them in that three foot, sixteen foot square thing. They can't fly out of it. They can't pull it off. But they will run through my one-acre pasture, and they'll take wing there, and occasionally one or two of them will go over a five-foot-high fence. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm hoping as they get bigger-bodied, as they fully mature, uh, that goes away. Well, I'll let them out of the chicken house in the morning sometimes, and then I'll be walking around the property, and I'll hear one behind me, and I'll look at them like, what would you do? And, you know, you have a pretend conversation, like, I flew out, and I can't find my friends. You know, so then they'll be, the other ones will be screaming for them to come back. Um, and they're kind of like clowns, but I would say, especially in that first year, especially smaller body yeast, uh, the, 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 another thing that the book says that isn't quite true is that they don't fly, give them, you know, 20, 30 feet to run and, and they won't fly away like a Canada goose or something, but they can fly. Uh, one hovered and looked in the pool the other day and I'm like, please don't go in there because you're really getting your wings clipped if that happens. Yeah, and ours, it's funny because ours are, are, you know, there's a classic example of just the opposite. I don't know if it's the breed. We, You know, ours could walk down, you know, could walk out of the county if they wanted. They have no containment, totally yeah. range. We just have 12 to 18-inch fencing around our veggie gardens. Yeah. They don't go over it, and they don't, people come out, and they're like, why don't they fly away? I'm like, I don't know, but I've never seen them take wing. They're, they might be bigger, um, you know, bigger breeds, but... Uh, these things don't seem like they could fly at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing, you know. And Toulouse are considered a large breed, and as I'm learning more about them, they're really not. They're a medium breed, and they're a little bit thinner build. And I don't think all of them can actually pull it off because I've seen them run, and you see like one or two get up, and the other ones only get a couple inches. Um, but they have to get that head of steam, and they won't go into something, and they don't leave the property. They don't fly off. It's like they know. Oh yeah. Right? It's like they've honed in on it, but they're like, I like that stuff on the other side of that fence. <laughs> so they'll fly because they get that one long runway they get. They can just get over that fence. And I've, my fear has been that they'll go out into the, the street and get clipped, you know, right? because uh, we have a fairly busy road right off our property. But I just wanted to throw that out there for people that think they can't fly because people say, well, how are you going to keep them in? I'm like, they can't fly. And two of them at least are like, yeah, we can fly. So at least two of them are probably going to get some wing feathers uh, trimmed back just to keep them safe, if nothing else. Anyway, man, as always, it's been great having you on today. Um, again, the website, wholesystemsdesign.com, and the book is The Resilient Farm and Homestead. And our guest has been Ben Falk. And uh, Ben, man, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jack. Much appreciated. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today, along with Ben Falk, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TV. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like.
Nobody up there cares. They're living. 